Verse 25 of chapter 4. After you've produced children and grandchildren, you have been in the land a long time. If you become corrupt and make an image of any kind and do evil things before Yahweh your God and enrage him, I invoke heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that you will surely and swiftly be removed from the very land that you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. You will not last long there because you will surely be annihilated. He says, it doesn't matter. Basically, the idea is it doesn't matter how much time has gone by. After you have children and after they have grandchildren and after da 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 it doesn't matter how long it goes by. If you decide to go after other gods, then I will wipe you out. This is a eternal covenant, a never-ending covenant with the people. And, and then he says, I invoke heaven and earth as my witness. Now, what does that mean? First, Heaven and earth are never passing away. It's not like, let's bring you over here as a witness, and then I have children, and then I have grandchildren. By the time I have great-grandchildren, all the witnesses are dead and gone because they don't last very long. So there's nobody to really testify to the fact that this really truly happened. So heaven and earth is his witness. The second is that he will use heaven and earth to punish you. Just like he used heaven and earth to punish the Egyptians, and the ten plagues, he will use them to punish you. And we'll get to that in chapter 29 and 30. But the third is this. Nature always obeys Yahweh. The witness is all of the sky and all of the earth and everything that is in them that always are faithful and always are obedient to Yahweh. And they're standing as always faithful and always obedient members of creation as a witness against us who are not so good at that. So the witnesses are always obedient. And basically the thing is that God has two things he's created, us and creation. And we're the ones he doesn't trust. We're the ones that are not obedient. So he's using the second thing as a witness to the fact that we're going to be held accountable to what he has said in this law. He doesn't need to make a covenant with heaven and earth and everything in between. They don't need a covenant. And then if we do violate it, he will wipe us out in two ways. We will be removed from the earth with plagues of the earth. We will be removed from the earth with plagues of the earth. And he's already proven that with the Egyptians. He's already proven that with Sihon and Og, with the Moabites and the Midianites, and he's always already proved it with that earlier generation of Israel, because God doesn't play favorites. Then, verse 27, Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and there will be very few of you among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. There you will worship the gods made by human hands, wood and stone that can neither see, hear, eat, nor smell. But if you now, so then he says, then he'll scatter you. Now remember, where did we see a scattering as a judgment in the Bible? The Tower of Babel. So I will scatter. I will disperse your community. And community is incredibly important. In the ancient world, it's very important in the word of God. And so I'm going to break your community apart. And I will scatter across the planet, and then you'll be very few. And remember the command was to be fruitful and multiply, which was also a blessing. You're not going to have that. So you'll be removed from the land. You will not be fruitful and multiplied. 
and your community will be destroyed and scattered. Isolation, basically, and no life. And then you'll worship the other gods. And this kind of should remind you of Romans, where it says, because they went over into their sexual immorality and then worshiping other gods, then God gave them over to it. Sometimes the worst judgment God could give you is giving you exactly what you want. Of many of the things that we pursue, God doesn't have to punish us because the things that we're pursuing and worshiping are destroying us for him. And God says, basically, fine. You want to pursue this thing that's inferior to me and will not really give you what you want and really cannot fix all your problems? Then go at it and have it. And then that thing ends up destroying us through our own choices. And so that's what God is saying. You want to worship the other gods? You will. But these gods can't hear, eat, speak, because they are limited. So they won't really truly respond to your needs in the way that you need them. And they really can't fix your life in the way that you want it fixed. And they can't really give you meaning in the way that you want meaning. And we know that. Just turn on the news. And over and over again, you've seen people become very famous and they're empty and miserable. People become very wealthy and they're empty and miserable. People are incredibly skilled and talented and they're empty and miserable. I mean, VH1, behind the scenes, like every artist documentary, people killing themselves at young ages and they have everything through drug overdose or whatever, or suicide. Oh, just over and over and over again, we see this in Hollywood and in the celebrity world and of politicians. People put all their money and everything into things like Enron. And then Enron goes down and people are committing suicide left and right as a result of that. Okay? People are actually losing it all when their presidential candidate doesn't become president. We see people who are empty and filled with meaningless all the time because they've put their hope in the wrong gods. But, verse 29, if you seek Yahweh, your God, from there, you will find him. If indeed you seek him with all of your heart and all of your soul and your distress, when all these things happen to you in the latter days, if you return to Yahweh, your God, and obey him, for he is a merciful God, and he will not let you down or destroy you, for he cannot forget the covenant with your ancestors that he confirmed by oath to them. It doesn't matter how far away you've gone. It doesn't matter how deep in worshiping other gods you've gone. It doesn't matter how much you've mucked up your life and other people's lives around you. If you fall on your knees before him and repent, God will restore you. Why? Because he cannot forsake his promises. And because he's merciful. Now, this is the template of the prophets. When you get to Amos and um, Hosea and Micah and Isaiah, the first set of prophets to come to Israel in their disobedience, they this is their template. The prophets are always making the point that you have sinned by doing this, this, and this. And as a result of your sin, you're going to be taken into exile by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. But every prophet ends, either in that section or at the very end of the book, with a promise that God will restore them. And ultimately, he does. And what's so interesting is that nowhere in the Bible does God ever tell us why he loves us. That's a great mystery. 
of why he loves us. I mean, we can take guesses because we know what it's like to love our children, even though they're a little balls of sin. And, and that somehow that unexplainable love wells up in you even when they're driving you nuts and you can't explain. I feel like that's a testimony to the existence of God right there. Like, when most people gave me their babies to hold, I'd be like, oh, okay. Just this eating, crying, pooping thing. But then when, like, my kid was born, my first one especially, because that was, like, all of a sudden this unexplainable love, like, welled up in me for this thing that was, like, really not very attractive after it first came out. And somehow this love just overwhelmed me that I had never felt. And then on top of that, when... They are just like, oh my goodness, I can't take this anymore. Like, how can you not hear? How can you not understand? How are you not changing? There's still this incredible perseverance of love for them. And I feel like that nature in itself, knowing how selfish we are and how greedy we are and all that kind of stuff, and yet despite that, there's a sense of like unexplainable, that itself should be an evidence of the character and the existence of God. I mean, I've seen people who are just not good people, and even they have this unexplainable love for their children that comes out of the middle of nowhere. And that's what God is saying. That kind of gives us a hint of why God loves us, but at the same time, I still don't know where that love came from, other than God. But that, that, that doesn't even make sense, that love, either. And so the reality is God never tells us why He loves us. He just tells us two things in the prophets. And this is really clearly laid out at the end of Micah. At the end of Micah, there's this guy, Israel, it's supposed to be a metaphor for Israel, sitting in the dust of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, taking him out, and he cries out to God to restore him and have mercy on him, and he only gives two reasons. And the first reason he has is because your character is compassionate, faithful, and forgiving. And because you made promises. And you always on your promises. That all the prophets, the only reason for why they give that God will restore us and redeem us is not because we're worthy of it, not because we earned it, not because we're intelligent, not because we're skilled, not because we're a beautiful, unique snowflake on the surface of the earth and doggone it, people like you, but because God's character is that of a compassionate, forgiving God, and He made promises, and He always keeps them. And what is Micah thinking about when he says that you made promises and your character is like that? Right here. But if on that day you repent, I will restore you, and I will bring you back to the land, because I'm a compassionate God, and I'm making a promise to you now. Now, you'd be very tempted to say, but, no, no, no. but look, he said right here that restoration is dependent upon your repentance. And one could easily say, there you go. That's not really based on the character of God and the, and the promises of God. He says, only if you repent. Ah, oh, but you have to read Micah in the context too. Because in the context, Micah also says, let's talk about your history. <laughs> remember Jacob deceiving and not trusting God and trying to get the promises the way that he wanted? And remember you guys in the wilderness, which Moses just went through right now with us, where you constantly disobeyed and over and over again. And no matter how many times you said, oh, we're sorry, God, never mind, we'll come back to you. You just turned on that again and disobeyed and complained and accused him of trying to kill you and all that kind of stuff. Your repentance never lasts. 
And then you remember when you finally had the land and you got this king and all that, you know, everything was great and Samuel was bringing revival and restoring everything and you said, hey, we want Saul, a king like all the other nations. Yeah, something's never changed with you people. And that's Micah's point. Even if you repent, it's not genuine and it will never last. So Micah then, then goes in and says, but God will restore you anyways because of his character and his promises. And so God says, yeah, he'll do this only if you repent. But God also knows that our repentance is usually meaningless. We can't maintain true repentance. Now, today we can maintain true repentance only because the Holy Spirit that is in us. But the only reason we have the Holy Spirit in us is because of the character and the promises and the faithfulness of Yahweh. And this is where all the prophets are getting rooted back into. I don't know why God loves me, but I know that his character is love, and I know he always honors his promises, and that's what I trust in. That's where my hope is. Because his reputation, that's the whole point of this Bible. The prophets are telling you the whole point of the Bible is to teach you that your repentance never really means anything and it never really lasts and you go right back into idolatry but at the same time God's character and God's promises are always consistent and always long-suffering and always steadfast and that's what you can trust in and that's why you're going to be restored one day that's why when you said oh God I'm so sorry I've done it again you know he'll forgive you because he's given you 66 books of a reputation and hopefully you've had a long enough relationship with him that you can point to own experiences in your life where he has. Are there still consequences? Yeah. I'm going to take you into exile. I'm going to oppress you. Da, 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 da. But there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. There's con- consequences, but no condemnation. And that's all rooted in this book. It's all rooted right here. What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to teach you, O man, what is right and good so that you'll do it and have life. But knowing that you won't, it also teaches you that God is faithful to restore you no matter what. That's the purpose of Deuteronomy. That's the heart of God. Don't get distracted by the judgments and forget the character of God. The other part of the Deuteronomy is to teach you there are consequences for your actions, but there is never abandonment for your actions. This is what it means to be good and godly. But when you're not that, God will always restore you. This is the consequences for your actions when you're not godly. But no matter what, God will never abandon you. That's the heart of Deuteronomy. That's the heart of Deuteronomy. And so tempted as a tiny, little, limited child in a world of selfishness and greed to look at the punishments of God and say, you're a horrible God, and forget how long he puts up with us, and forget how the fact that we still have pretty amazing lives despite the punishments and the sufferings, and to forget that we do the exact same thing with our own children and our own students and our own whatever. We punish them and we restore them. This is the purpose of Deuteronomy. Chapter 4, verse 32. Indeed, ask about the distant past, starting with the day God created humankind on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other. 
whether there has ever been such a great thing as this, or even a rumor of it. Have a people ever heard the voice of God speaking from the middle of the fire as you yourselves have and lived to tell about it? Or has God ever before tried to deliver a nation from the middle of another nation accompanied by judgment, signs, wonders, wars, strength, power, and other very terrifying things like Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You can read all the historical records of every single nation. You can look at all the dreams and the visions of every single nation. You can look at all the imaginations and all the stories that people have made up of all. And yet, have you ever heard of a God who loved you so much that he stepped into history, space, time, and matter, stepped into the muck of your rebellion and your idolatry, stepped into the middle of another powerful, obstinate nation, and yanked you out of it, delivered you, and put you in front of a mountain where he appeared to you and glory and splendor and awesomeness and said, I'm going to make you my people. You've never even heard of that. Even the greatest superhero in all of comic history is Superman. And you know who invented Superman? Two Jewish boys back in the 30s or 40s who looked at all the Messianic prophecies and said, we're going to create a superhero based on the Messianic prophecies, and they create a man by the name of Superman. They were not Christians. They did not believe in Jesus. They just merely went to the First Testament, and they looked at the character of God, and they looked at the character of the Messiah, and they invented a superhero that cannot lie, that is sent from another planet to save a people who don't deserve it, and gives up his entire life in order to make this place a better place, and ultimately even sacrifice his own life. Now, are there some comic books, Superman comic books today, where he's kind of jacked up and not trustworthy? Yes, but that's an evolution over many, 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 many years. But the original one was that. The greatest superhero that has ever lived in American comic history is based on the messianic concepts that come from the character of God. Do you see how much this Bible has shaped our culture even today? And we don't even know it. We haven't even been aware of it. And this is what God is saying. Why is Superman copied from the Bible? And why is he so unique to every other character we've ever come up with? Because there is nothing else out there that's anything like the Bible and what God has done. This is what God is saying. Have you ever heard of anything like this? And that's something that we can't fully appreciate because we grew up in this. But for them, this is completely foreign, completely unheard. And when you go to other countries, it's completely unheard of and foreign. You know, even during that, why one of the reasons that Christianity thrives so much is because one of the dominant religions was worshiping pagan gods who didn't care about you in the Roman Empire. And the other dominant religion, the intelligentia, was that you could become your own god if you saved yourself through your own knowledge and your own intellect, which that doesn't go over well when 99% of the people can't even read or write in your culture. And it was all about elitism and about earning it. And then Christianity comes along, and it doesn't care whether you're poor or wealthy, male or female, whatever ethnicity you are, or whatever social status you are, Christianity provides salvation free to all, regardless of merit. And why did the Roman world explode in Christianity? Because they never heard of anything like that before. They never heard of anything like that before. 
Who has ever heard of a God like this? Verse 35, You have been taught that Yahweh alone is God. There is no other besides him. From heaven he spoke to you in order to teach you, and on earth he showed you his great fire, from which you are also heard his words. Moreover, because he loved your ancestors, he chose their descendants who follow them and personally brought you out of Egypt with his great power to dispossess the nations greater and stronger than you and brought you here this day to give you their land as your property. So he defeated the greatest nations on his own strength to give you a land that you don't earn and you're not worthy of. Today, realize, carefully consider that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep his statutes and commandments that I am setting forth to you for today so that it may go well with you and your descendants and that you may enjoy longevity in the land that Yahweh your God is about to give you as a permanent possession. Tenosi begins this section with obey so that you may live in the land. And then he gives you all the reasons the character of God is absolutely unique to anything else, that you're going to be blessed unlike anything else. And then he ends with, so then, obey so that you can live long in the land. Now, he doesn't exactly mean like all of us living to be a long time, but that all of you through your descendants will live in the land for a long time. He's not promising like 200, 300 year lifespans. He's promising multiple generations in the land. Then Moses selected three cities in the Transjordan toward the east, and anyone who accidentally killed someone without hating him at the time of the accident could flee to one of these cities and be safe. These cities are Bezer and the Desert Plateau, and the Reubenites, Ramoth and Gilead, and the Gadites and the Golan, and the Bashan and the Meshites. Now, this seems really out of place. <laughs> but the reason is he's now done with his first speech, and they're now in the Transjordan, so before he gets to the next speech, he wants to deal with some final business, and the final business is cities of refuge. Now remember, once again, this actually ties into his character because by the fact that he allows you to have a city of refuge, which we talked about last week, where you can actually go to a city to be proven guilty or not guilty rather than just some relative just killing you whether you're guilty or not, is just the character of God itself. And it's just one example of how God's laws make more sense than everybody else's. And so this is the end of his first speech. The end of his first speech is, this is the purpose of the law. If you want a really good summary of God's character, his uniqueness, and why you should obey, it's chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 4 of Deuteronomy is a very good kind of nutshell of why we obey and who God is and why he's worthy of it. Now, he's going to take all those ideas and unpack them in the next two speeches. He's going to unpack all the ideas of chapter 4 in the next two speeches, which is the rest of the book. Any questions?